What is it? The main thing I got from it was like this sense of feeling seen and validated. Well, why does it have to be this way? This book was placed in my hand for this moment. Insightful, learned a lot, wrote some quotes that I'm ready to like paint on my wall. I love this book! That we just kind of pull out some, some of the big themes that we see and, and talk about a few different ones. I apologize if most of my contribution has K-pop references. Alternative book title, The Feminine Mystique Part 2. You were really just gay all along. <laughs> Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. We are two lifelong friends who usually usually read a book and talk about it each episode. This is a podcast where we explore new perspectives and we use books as tools for personal and community growth. This week, it's very exciting. We are talking to author Rebecca Stotts about her new novel, Dark Earth, set in 6th century Britain, about two sisters with dangerous secrets. Rebecca Stott is an award-winning writer, historian, and broadcaster. She writes both fiction and nonfiction from historical novels to novelistic history books. Her memoir, In the Days of Rain, about growing up in a cult, won the Costa Biography Prize in 2017. She has taught literature and creative writing in British universities for 32 years, but has just given up her university job to become a freelance writer. Dark Earth is Rebecca's third novel and is now available in the UK and US. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. When your publishers reached out to us about your book, we were very excited. Powerful women, magic, swords, especially. Julia loves swords. I love swords. I was so excited. I was like, she's a sword forger. So uh, we were like, this is perfect. I'm so happy that the, the timing worked out to not only read the book, but have you on as well. To start out, we'd love to hear your experience with reading. What was the first thing you read that made you think like, oh yeah, I I also want to tell stories? Oh, well, my, my background is a bit unusual. My childhood was a bit unusual insofar as the cult that I was part of, that my book In the Days of Rain is about, forbade us from reading books as children. Wow. So yeah, so I was a child <laughs> with a very big imagination and not much to feed it on. So there was an awful lot yeah. of bible reading so a lot of our early games were were bible based stories but then when i went to school we were not allowed to bring library books home from school we could read encyclopedias and factual things but we were not allowed to read made-up stories Mm. and so i stole into the library one day uh, when i was about six or seven and pulled out a an Eni Blyton book called The Secret Island and started reading it. I mean, and all the Eni Blyton books are just fantastic. There's Secret This and Secret That. I remember seeing Secret on the, on the spine of the book uh, and thinking that that was especially exciting. But it was a story about uh, a group of kids who were running away from parents, not parents, from bad adults. And, and of course, the whole story was so brilliant to me because it was about kids being in charge and kids making up their own minds and kids making decisions about stuff and living on an island completely by themselves. They were about, I don't know, 10 or something, being completely independent. So that was just blew my mind. Absolutely Mm. blew my mind. I I hid it under the beanbag in the library and kept coming back and reading it whenever I could. So I, you know, it was like, especially delicious because it was my first proper 
big story with children in charge. Yeah. It had secret on the spine. <laughs> and it was my secret. It was underneath yeah. the beanbag. So adventure stories are especially precious to me. So, you know, in a way, Dark Earth is an adventure story and it's also about an island. And, you know, I think that book just keeps, because it was such a visceral experience for me, so exciting that, you know, I think that book probably keeps on repeating in my fiction a lot. Wow. (laughs) That's incredible that you not only... Like, what a story for your first book um, and how influential it was. That's something we really love to talk about is, or I mean, I can speak for Victoria. Like, we get very passionate about the importance of children's literature in, like, when we were kids, helping us imagine our own agency and making up our own minds. So that's, like, a really incredible example of that where like you were able to it it gave you something to imagine that you hadn't been exposed to before yeah and I mean a book that you know at the heart of it it was a book that that was saying maybe grown-ups aren't always right yeah you know which is like a really big deal for children Mm -hmm. good book so then like when about did you start writing probably I mean you know I wrote I still still got some of my school books and they are you know from my secondary school yeah full of little you know crazy little stories that you know we were all required to write but I think probably in my teens I wrote a lot of very very strange very dark things Mm. very dark stories but I didn't really start to write I went to university I became an academic I was a historian for a long time and and I taught literature so mainly I, I learned to write by writing academic books and then I got really, really sick of it. <laughs> I got really sick of writing academic prose. And yeah. all the time people would be saying, you know, this is all a bit flowery, the academic prose, you know, because I was trying to do things that were imaginative, you know, mm-hmm. to try to imagine myself into the head of this historical character or that historical character so I think it was going to happen at some point and I got to about late 30s probably before I broke out and broke away my first books were were history books but written novelistically you know written Mm. with suspense and lots of color and I enjoyed it so much it was like being given my head for the first time you know yeah it was just you know and once that had happened once I'd written kind of novelistic history books Then I wrote my first novel. But I've never really written short stories. I like the big canvas. I like intricate plots and characters, you know, moving through time. So I've never really mastered that art. And I'm always so impressed by people who can and do. Mm. Because, you know, to turn a story on a pin rather than having this great big canvas to, to write in. I'm curious. Okay, first of all, totally love the experience, like the story of like coming out of this very restrictive childhood and you you find the fiction and the fantasy writing as as such like an open door for your imagination and then seeing that parallel in your own writing career as you you've written very academic and formal writing and then using that as an entry point to to open up and into the fantasy Mm. and the fiction as well um it's so beautiful and I'm curious like as you've been 
transitioning between the novelistic historical nonfiction into the fictional novel, what kind of had a change in your approach? And how does kind of that process of writing feel different as you move into writing more novels? I guess, I mean, in university, we would probably call it critical writing. Yeah, critical writing and creative writing. And for me, those things started out being a bit of a binary, being like, oh, am I going to do this book this way or this way? And what I realised more and more as I went on is that it's more of a spectrum. It's all writing. It's all storytelling in a way. Even an academic book is kind of telling a story. It's pitching an idea. It's taking the reader through time. So for me, what I try to do, instead of thinking that the two things are opposites or binaries, that I move up and down the spectrum and that I might move up and down the spectrum within a single book as well. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, my first book, Ghost Walk, is probably my most complicated book. It's a story about Isaac Newton. It's got a dual time frame. And uh, within it, I had an academic character who was a central character who was writing a book about Isaac Newton. So excerpts from her book go into the novel. And there are actually footnotes to her book, some of which I started playing around with because I love the idea of kind of fake footnotes. Yeah. Um, so most of the footnotes were accurate like you could actually find a book with that page number and that you know would be there and sometimes I made up stuff and, and slipped it in <laughs> so that book was a mixture of fiction and non-fiction and I think in lots of ways I mean you know, it's not to everyone's taste because it's quite a complicated book but I had such fun writing it and I want to do that again I'm you know I guess all of my books to some extent are playing around with that fiction, non-fiction boundary. I mean, the biggest difference with fiction is that you do dialogue and, you know, Mm. in non-fiction, you know, your characters don't speak, you don't make up things. It's all mainly true. But I like mixing that so that you've got, because I love the research. I'm a historian and I love really, really going deep into, you know, understanding about how swords are made or, or about plague in the 17th century. And so it's kind of mixing fact and fiction is is what I do. Ah, that sounds so fun. Like, <laughs> I, um, like just, I don't know, the way you talk about it, of having this kind of sense of play, I suppose, of like not boxing yourself in anywhere. Like, oh, let's try this. Let's add some fake footnotes just to, let's get crazy. As someone who's currently doing a lot of academic writing and getting uh-huh. very bogged <laughs> down in it and... You know, a lot of my training was in, uh, well, sort of a mixture, but I did a lot of creative writing in my bachelor's and now I'm back writing the like analytical essays and I'm like, oh, I get, yeah. I feel some sometimes you get so excited by the idea and then the form, the structure feels kind of uninspiring sometimes. Yeah, I still think though, I mean, I really do think you can, there's a lot you can do within critical writing. Mm-hmm. And maybe the common denominator is thinking always about the experience of the reader. So that, you know, for me, that's paramount. Sometimes I forget. And then when I come back to a draft, I'm thinking, okay, this is a good enough draft, but what would the reader make of this? You know, what's their experience? What's the joy in this for them? And I think the same questions apply for for critical writing as well. Some critical writing is so dull because it's really you know it's it's so turgid and it, that's not a nice experience for the reader and I think 
good critical writing can often be, without being flowery, as people used to accuse me of being, uh, you know, I think it's possible to be rich and vivid and engaging in critical writing and not enough people are encouraged to do that. Yeah. Yeah. There, that's my, that's my hobby horse for today. <laughs> uh, it's been, it's been one of my obsessions actually is working with, because uh, I teach literature and I teach yeah. uh, creative writing. So I teach academic prose and I teach, uh, or used to, I've given it up now. You know, it was always a big thing for me to encourage students to find ways of writing delightfully, mm. as well as getting the footnotes right and, you know, being fluent, being elegant and being, mm-hmm. you know, taking the reader on a journey, even if that journey is an, is a kind of argumentative one. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I wish I had had you as a professor. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I just, I find for a lot of people, I think they just copy what they see. And sometimes what they see is quite dull. Dull. <laughs> we both use that word at the same time. <laughs> yeah. All right. I could talk about that forever. But we were also really excited to see that you write for radio. We were curious if there is like a... Do you find it any different in constructing the the structure that you use for those pieces? And also, do you have a trick for writing prose that sounds good being read out loud? Oh, I just love... So the radio that I do is a very particular program. It's called A Point of View. And it's a BBC program, it's Radio 4, and basically it's a nine-minute essay. It's like a a personal essay, and it needs to be topical, so it needs to be related to the news in some way. But it can be quite tangential, you know, it can come at a subject quite. So what I try to do, when I first heard this program, I was struck, and I I really hope that none of the people who make it listen to your podcast, because (laughs) I was struck by how many men were on this program and they would just mm. do a, a point of view, their their point of view as a mansplaining, you know, mm. mansplaining, but also a bit ranty and a bit like, here's me holding forth and I'm going to tell you what I think. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something that was a bit more what I would call dialogic, a pretentious word, but something that's a bit more dialogue based. So I write my pieces like little stories and they usually start with an anecdote where I, you know, I talk to somebody, a PhD student or a, a postman or, or, you know, and he said this and I said that. And so that the, the listener who's sitting in the car will hear this story and they'll be thinking, where is she going with this? You know, what's this about? And then usually what I do is, you know, I come out of a very particular experience, you know, the day I lost my keys the day I talked to that postman or, or, or something that happened to me when I was a child so that the listener doesn't know where I'm going. And then I I broaden out like a camera sort of gradually panning out, 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 out and you realise, oh my goodness, she's saying something about the Ukraine crisis or that's where she's going. So you've got these swerves along the way and the, the listener literally doesn't know where you're going to take it next and you surprise them. So that one minute you're talking about your conversation with the postman and then you're in Ukraine or wherever else. So th- actually the the model I use for this is, I don't know if you know the poet Elizabeth Bishop. Oh, I love her work. I love her work <laughs> so much. So in some of her most famous poems, she will take you into something that's very, very particular and, and give you like incredible detail, like the... The patterning on the side of a fish, a waiting room, you know, that amazing poem, the waiting room where a child is looking at a magazine. 
and you'll go and you're totally in the detail and then suddenly the camera pans back and you realize she's saying something existential so that you go from the particular not from the particular to the general but from the particular to something really quite philosophical and complex so that's what I try to do and I try and do as many gear changes and, and about turns and u-turns along the way uh, so that the listener in nine minutes gets you know quite a lot of different texture so that's what I try and do but I'm still learning I'm <laughs> still learning <laughs> Oh, yeah. And I, I really like how poetry has inspired mm. the way of writing these, what end up being radio segments and, and how all these different forms that we tend to separate fiction, nonfiction, novel, critical essay, and how they really aren't as separate uh, and binary as, as we sometimes make them out to be. And that good storytelling can be brought into any any space that we are speaking or writing in. And now I want to go listen to your, your story about the postman. <laughs> like, where, where does that one go? I, I really want to know. If you, if you go to my website and you go to the radio broadcasting pages, all the ones I've done are, are there. And the one that people love most, I think, is the one I wrote. It's called Reflections on My Mother's Kenwood Mixer. It's all about a, a particular machine that my mother had when I was a child, which we did a lot of cooking with. And then there's another one which is called On Waiting, which is about losing my keys whilst out in the countryside during lockdown mm-hmm. uh, with, with my daughters. So those two, On Waiting and the Kenwood Mixer piece are the, are the two. So let's talk about your latest book, Dark Earth, which was released earlier uh, this summer, 2022. I'll read a little excerpt for our listeners. The year is 500 AD. Sisters Isla and Blue live in the shadows of the ghost city, the abandoned ruins of the once-glorious, mile-wide Roman settlement Londinium on the banks of the River Thames. But the small island they call home is also a place of exile for Isla, Blue, and their father, a legendary blacksmith accused of using dark magic to make his fire-tongue swords. When he dies suddenly, the sisters find themselves facing enslavement by the local warlord and his cruel, power-hungry son. Their only option is to escape to the ghost city, where they discover an underworld of rebel women living secretly amid the ruins. But if Isla and Blue are to survive the men who hunt them and protect their new community, they will need to use all their skill and ingenuity, as well as the magic of their foremothers, to fight back. So, okay, reading that, that was the point where Julie and I were like, okay, let's call up Rebecca. We want to read this book and talk to her about it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So setting a story in the Dark Ages, 500 AD, what interested you? What what kind of sparked telling a story in that time and place? I've written novels set in the 17th century. That's the, I wrote one novel set in the 17th century. That's the earliest I'd gone in, in history. But back, I don't know, it's probably about 10 years ago, I was traveling down through Jordan uh, with three friends in a car. We drove from the top of Jordan, it's a long thin country, all the way down uh, through the desert. And uh, every few miles, it seemed, there were Roman uh, cities just sticking up out of the sand, you know, amazing. Uh, Some of them really, really complete. You know, if you walk down a street, a cobbled street, and there'd be columns on both sides and temples, so I think that was where it started for me. I was just suddenly really obsessed with ruined cities and imagining mm. what it would be like to live 
in the hinterland of one. So trying to imagine if you were an Anglo-Saxon coming into Britain after the Romans had left and you walked through that mile-wide ruined city, what would you see? What would you feel? What would you mm. think? And if you knew nothing about those people, I call them the Sun Kings, but, you know, essentially calling them the, they're the Romans. If you knew nothing about the Romans, then what would you think the Romans were if you mm -hmm. lived in a... If you lived in a wooden hut and you're walking through this, you know, vast stone city with all of these statues and, you know, what would that have done to your head? <laughs> so that yeah. was, that's what I began with, I think. And then I started researching and then I committed to writing that book and realized that, I, you know, it was an extraordinary task because nobody knows. There's no... There's no manuscripts or there's no mm. written accounts of this period at all. It's literally the darkest corner of the dark ages. So archaeologists just kept saying to me, you're mad. You know, why not choose a period that we know at least something about? So the research for the book involved interviewing archaeologists, reading loads of papers, reading loads of books. And of course, realizing that because there are such gaps in what we know, archaeologists didn't always agree with each other about how to interpret mm. the archaeological remains. But my story began uh, back in 1968. An archaeologist found a brooch in a site in current London, which was basically a Roman bathhouse that had belonged to the Roman city of Londinium. And everybody assumed that, well, we know, that nobody went, very few people went into the ruined city for 400 years after the Romans left. And people have theories about that. They think maybe the people who lived in the surrounding area thought the place was haunted or it was dangerous. You know, they, they didn't go in. We know that because there's so little stuff that people have found in that 400 years when the city was abandoned. But this archaeologist found a brooch and it was sitting on top of the fallen roof tiles of a private bathhouse on the north bank of the Thames. And he could tell it was, it was an Anglo-Saxon brooch. It belonged to a woman. So that meant that this woman, for sure, walked across the broken roof tiles of a, fall, of a, of a Roman bathhouse and dropped mm. her brooch. And that's what I began with. You know, that, that blew my mind. She went in there. Nobody else she knew was going into the city. She went in there. Why? Was she on the run? Was this a love tryst? Was she in danger? You know, so once I had that brooch, which was my Elizabeth Bishop focus, I guess, then I could, I could start to come out from there and find the women, in this case, two sisters, who might have gone into the city. My novel is the answer to why did she go in there, you know? So then, okay, so you started with the brooch and you started with all these questions of like, who is that woman? What was like the first image or the first scene or like, what was the first sort of concrete thing that you wrote? It was the opening chapter because my two sisters, uh, I, I knew quite early on that my two sisters had been exiled. So if you're a smith in the, this period, People think that um, people were a bit frightened of smiths because they could do magical things with fire. So if you can do magical things with fire, maybe you can do, you know, maybe you've got dark magic. So quite often smiths' forges were on the outskirts of the village. And I also knew that my smith, 
the father of these two sisters, was making really high-end swords. I mean, the kinds of swords that would be like, you know, a Maserati now. Like, <laughs> And so his skills would have been very valuable and he might have been... So what happens at the beginning of my novel is that the smith and his daughters have been exiled to an island in the Thames so the local overlord can make sure that he makes swords only for the overlord. And they've been there for five years, just the two sisters, teenagers, and their father. And their father's getting old. So the young girl, Isla, the elder of the two sisters, has been making the swords for him and with him. She's been trained to do it. And that is absolutely forbidden in this period. Uh, well, in, in my novel, it's yeah. absolutely <laughs> forbidden. The local overlords, you know, like women don't go into forges. They're not allowed anywhere near them now. They'll curse the sword, they'll curse everything, they're bad luck, etc. Uh, so Isla has this big secret that she can make these swords. So uh, I wrote the opening chapter where the dilemma, you know, suddenly becomes evident that the father dies in the first couple of pages of the book and the two sisters now have to figure out what they're going to do because... Their father is what's keeping them on the island and keeping them fed and everything. And now, do they confess that they know how to make swords? Do they pretend that their father's still alive? You know, so that's the dilemma that the book starts with. So I just, for me, also, it gave me this lovely moment where I could have the two sisters are up on the mound on the mud island, looking across the water to see the ruined city on the north bank of the Thames. And Isla is always wondering, what's going on in there? And oh, I wish we could go and visit it. And, you know, it's her big obsession. So that's how the novel opens, with the two sisters looking at the at the ruins walls of the, of the city of Londinium. So Dark Earth is firmly set in the past, but touches on many themes that resonate with modern audiences, particularly the relationships between a lot of the characters. So can you walk us through how you kind of wove those strands together? Yeah, I don't, when I'm writing historical fiction, I don't start by thinking, oh, I want to write about, you know, this theme or that theme, because they're modern themes. But I think once you, or for me anyway, when, particularly with this book, once I started getting into the heads of the women, the two sisters in particular, and exploring their relationship with each other, and then later with the other women in the novel, it was almost as if... I don't know. I mean, I was looking for for relevant themes because you you know when you read a book, you want to feel as though there is you know the world that you're right that you're reading about is both very alien and very different and very fascinating, but at the same time that there are universal themes and universal dilemmas. You know, I think my book is a is a feminist book. I think it explores the coming of patriarchy. But my sisters would never have used the word patriarchy. They wouldn't, you know, yeah. they, they weren't feminists in the sense that we would understand it now. But at the same time, you know, they were resourceful, they were plucky, they were independent. So, you know, I think a lot of people get very hot under the collar about projecting kind of modern ideas back into the past. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes you read books where you just think, no, 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 those characters are using language that wouldn't be appropriate to their time. But it seems to me that those sisters, and particularly the women that they meet, who have had terrible experiences at the hands of very uh, cruel men, would have found ways of fighting back, of supporting each other, 
about securing their independence, about making decisions that allowed them to uh, survive on their own terms. So in this novel, for instance, the women don't have an army. They, they need to fight the local overlord and his men, but they don't have an army and they don't have swords. So they have to use their wits. So it was all for me about, you know, well, if you were in this situation, what would you do? If you were on the run from some cruel men, what would you do? So I think the book ends up being a feminist book and it explores, you know, it explores multiculturalism as well. But my characters would never use the term multicultural. They're just living in a world in which people come from all over the Roman Empire. And so those women would have worshipped different gods and they would have come from different races you know so I have a woman who comes from modern day Hungary I have a a, a male character in the novel who comes from North Africa because we know that Roman soldiers and he comes from a long line of Roman soldiers they came from all over the world so you know the book explores things that are important to us or themes that are important to us but not at the expense of it being also true that these things would have been relevant to my characters as well mm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like people who get frustrated by, I suppose, having a feminist way of seeing the past, perhaps, or, you know, in people who get bothered by that, I feel like it, it's sort of supposing that the people in the past were, like, less than us somehow, that they would not have fought for themselves, that they would not have imagined a different way of doing things. So I think, you know, limiting people from history is just a severe lack of imagination <laughs> and also I think it's also quite quite sexist in a way I think yeah you know, because I think often behind this you know oh that's nonsense you're projecting a feminist sensibility onto women in the past well the assumption then is well were all women compliant in the past did they did none of them fight back were none of them you know, free thinkers, yeah. <laughs> were none of them feisty, you know, it's like, okay, they may not have had the language or the political language that we have to describe our feminism, but, but nonetheless, you know, women, of course, through all ages have fought back against cruelty and, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. And it, it isn't like, you know, women of the early 20th century suffragette movements or women of the 70s just woke up one day and decided, you know, enough with this. <laughs> It was generations and generations, yes. millennia yeah. of of the, our world and society developing the way it has, yeah. and women finding ways to to speak up and to push back within their contexts, and sometimes breaking down those contexts and building new ones. So that was one thing I really did appreciate in your novel too. It is the world building because we don't have much information about this world and what it would have looked like at that time. We don't have that historical research, but you can make some assumptions and some understandings of what would it have been like as you've raised it for people who you, who were brought from across the Roman Empire into this land and what would that have experienced been like? So it's not that characters are just popping up from nowhere without an explanation mm. of how they got there and, and how they live their lives. Yeah. Yeah, and also I worked, I was lucky enough to work with two amazing archaeologists who well, one was a historian and one was an archaeologist, both experts on this period. And I said to them, look, you know, this may not be to your taste, it may not be the kind of book that you would read. It's an adventure story, it's got supernatural things going on, you know. But would you read it and just tell me if there was anything that feels out of place or Mm. that you you know can't be true so they were brilliant so mm. you know they were absolutely brilliant they did they went through the finished book in its I don't know third draft or something and said you know things like okay get this one 
I had rats in my ruined city. My archaeologist said there are no rats after the Romans left for about 200 years. There's no rats in the archaeological wow. record. And that's because rats follow surplus. They follow grain stores. Right. So for 200 years after the Romans left, there was no surplus. There were no grain stores. People were just living a hand-to-mouth existence. So the rats disappear. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that, doesn't that blow your mind? <laughs> <laughs> So I had to go back through and take the rats out. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have lots of rats, but, you know, I had a, I had a few. <laughs> I'm imagining this whole subplot where there's, you know, a rat kingdom, um, you know, rat friends. It would have really changed the novel. They claimed the brooch as their own. <laughs> yeah, the sequel. <laughs> the sequel, not the rats. Wow. Yeah, isn't that amazing? And and also she said, you know, you've got a few scenes where your characters sit down and seem to lean back in their in their chairs. And she said it's 200 years before any seats have backs. Right? That is an important detail. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> Never would have thought of that. Like, when did our chairs get backs? Right. <laughs> there were stools and there were benches, but not seats with backs. So you can't have your characters kind of lolling. Right. Because, you know, they, they didn't lull. They were there were seats and stools. Wow. So that was really interesting. So yeah, there was a lot of that going on. <laughs> Such tiny details that we take for granted of like, well, if like if someone said, Oh, draw me a chair, draw me something you sit on, it's always gonna have a back. Like that's just like what is in our minds. But at a certain point someone had to decide, you know what? My back is tired. <laughs> Can we add something to this chair? <laughs> so I can leave. Yeah, and that person made a lot of money. The person who invented the seat back. I think probably there are examples of you know seats with backs in China and all over mm. the place. But mm-hmm. in this period, there were no seat backs. So you mentioned how there are there are some supernatural elements. There's a bit of magic. There's a bit of religion, um, and. There aren't a lot of records of this period. And so what were you drawing from to sort of construct that aspect of the story? Yeah, it was a difficult one. And it was really important to me because, you know, I had, I think sort of going back to my childhood as well, like it's one of the things that when I I, I have taught historical fiction, I think it's one of the things that people leave out uh, at their peril in a way that, so many historical characters would have belief systems. They would have gods in their heads. They would have been having dialogues with their gods in their heads. They would have been making deals with gods. They would have been sacrificing to gods. And I think that's a real conundrum for people who write historical fiction because many of our readers today will not have that kind of sensibility. Mm. Some will, but most won't, probably. And so how do you create the inner world of a character who has a belief system without alienating your reader Mm -hmm. or making them think this is all a bit kind of, you know, woohoo. But it did seem to me, because we know, okay, just to give you an example, we know votive offerings, i.e. people taking their favourite necklace or their favourite bracelet and breaking it and throwing it into the water was happening a lot, like all the time, particularly into water (laughs) and into marshes, because people would be buying themselves some luck. You know, they would say to the god, you know, I want to cross this river, so I'm going to sacrifice this before I go, or I'm going to sacrifice a goat or a dog or a necklace or something. So there's a lot of 
bargaining going on, a lot of saying to the gods, if I do this, will you keep me safe or, or get my grandmother well again? So that's what I started with. I knew that my characters would have different gods, but that what they would have in common is that negotiating relationship with their gods a lot of the time. And that, you know, almost certainly a community of people who are living together and, and worshipping different gods well, my my community are very respectful of each other's beliefs, and uh, so you know there isn't there aren't feuds going on and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's it, it was important to me, and it was important to try and get inside the heads of my sisters as well as they as they got frustrated with their gods, and then they came back to their gods, and the way in which they might believe, for instance, in second sight, and also in things like the touch which is you know if you have the touch it means you can cure people so all of those superstitions and that that sense of oh that person has powers that person has a degree of spirituality or a way of speaking to the gods that is more powerful than anybody else in the community so yeah that's that's how it came about and it was one of the most interesting things for me in the book was to try to make that inner world as well as the outer world yeah, I particularly enjoyed the element of this magic and, and thinking of it in like almost a folklore religious setting within this historical novel. I thought it was a really beautiful blend of like topics or themes that we might say, oh, one is fantasy or that is historical fiction. But as we talked about earlier, it's it's the spectrum. It's blending these forms. It's not making clear lines between, oh, if you're making up a magical uh, religious experience that has to be fantasy it's not mm. historical you know realistic fiction anymore but instead blurring that line and realizing and recognizing that while many of our readers today many of us don't have these ongoing dialogues with gods and bartering and it, those might be newer things for us but to read it in the novel is to understand like oh right yeah that is a way people lived their lives mm. in the past and um i think also helps as we talked about with um weaving between the the modern themes and the historical fiction setting i think the the element of religion really helped me ground myself and oh these are modern themes but also we are in a historical past yeah and a world in which people have a different relationship with their dead as well you know that that we know that that people in this period and and later as well you know that sense not that there are ghosts perhaps and you know, that's a very kind of particular idea about the dead but the idea that the dead might still be about us somehow they might still be present even in their absence so I wanted to create that not so that the reader thinks oh yes, she's seen a ghost, but rather the reader would begin to understand that world in which the, the boundary between the living and the dead was actually quite permeable. So wrapping up our discussion, you, you've uh, taught writing for many years, and just curious if you have any parting words of advice for young writers, any common mistakes you saw in students over the years, or, or maybe advice you, you've been able to take in as you've continued to expand your writing into the genre of novels? Yeah, well, two things, I think, really. Just like, the first is an obvious one, and I'm sure people give this advice all the time, is just keep moving forward. Don't be tempted to keep going back and polishing your beginning. I've seen students do that. I've seen young writers do that again and again. They have this fantastic opening, and it's polished, you know, to a deep shine, but they're nervous about going forward. I just think you have to write 
a rough first draft of the whole thing and then start your polishing. And that's hard. It's hard to do that because, you know, editing is fun, but I think you should leave the editing until you've got your manuscript and not keep going back. Uh, and the other thing is something a bit more philosophical, I suppose. I, I have a friend who's a poet and he said to me casually, almost like a throwaway line, he said, it's it's really important to me to write what only I can write. Hmm. And it took me weeks to, to mull over that. It was so valuable to me to think that my experience, weird childhood that I've had, you know, my, my stealing a book from the library when I was eight or nine, you know, that weird experience is my gold dust. You know, that, that is the gold that I carry. Uh, not all of that experience was happy, much of it was troubled. But I have the beautiful experience of being able to write what only I can write. And I to do that, I have to draw on not, you know, straightforward autobiographical material, but the deep, the deep experiences that only I have had as an individual. And that's a blend of things. So when I lose my way in a novel, I quite often ask myself, what about this novel or this story is a tale that only you can tell? Mm. And get back and connect to that when you get tempted to do lots of fancy stuff, you know? What mm. is it that's coming from your deep core and that only you can write? And I don't always get that right, but it's a useful thing for me. It's a useful tool for me. Oh. Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> another, way, another way of uh, putting it, I think, is don't be afraid to be weird. Mm. You know, it's like yeah. we're all a bit weird and we have weird ways of seeing. And, and if, if you can get that down, you know, not being weird for weird's sake, but like the things that only you feel and think and see are precious things. And, you know, we should be proud of them. However strange they might be and I do think my books are quite strange <laughs> um, but you know but I'm proud of that yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that that's wonderful I really enjoyed that I'm gonna be thinking about that I'm like I need a transition but I oh, that was so good for people who liked who have read your book they have listened to this podcast they have gone to the store to purchase your book they have read it and they loved it and now what would you recommend they read next or on the other hand for listeners who have not read it yet what is a book that you know if they enjoyed that book they would also like yours I either one yeah um there's a book that I read recently called Quen C-W-E-N Quen by a writer called Alice Albina I think it's out in the states as well as in the UK it was published, uh, I think, last year. It's a very strange and very wonderful, very gripping book about um, an island in which it's a contemporary novel in which the women gradually take over. They take over pretty much everything. Mm. And then bad things start to happen and there's kickback. It's told by lots of different narrators, lots of different characters who've been part of this experience. It, uh, it's a feminist book, but also strange and haunting the characters are fantastic and mm. um, it reminded me a little bit of margaret atwood oh that sounds so fascinating yeah <laughs> i know i'm like that sounds like something that we would read for this podcast <laughs> we should, we like, should add perfect. it to the list taking notes, taking notes. <laughs> good 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 add to the list <laughs> 
What about you, Julia? What would you recommend for listeners? Yeah. So I think for me, thinking along the lines of, this is more fantasy, I suppose, than historical fiction. But again, as we've discussed, blurry lines. So I would say Black Sun by Rebecca Roanhorse, which we have done an episode on, but it's the pre-Columbian America. Yeah, Central America. Central America. Yeah. Where it's bringing some life to it and some fantasy and... There's a lot of religious conflict in that one as well, different. um, So yeah, I think brilliant book. Probably recommend that one. I was also thinking that for the the religion element of of kind Mm -hmm. of imagining what it would be to have different political groups, different people groups, different individuals from different communities and how they see the world differently through their, the way they see the world and how those different points of view conflict. Okay. Two books I was thinking of. Rebecca, when you mentioned footnotes, I immediately thought of uh, A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki because mm-hmm. I love the footnotes. And uh, anyone who's listened to Julie and I talk about that book will know that I made the blunder of listening to the audiobook version, which didn't include the footnotes, which I think is so shame. disappointing. Because then when I started flipping through the, the printed version, I was like, there is a whole layer to this mm-hmm. book I lost. So that book is quite wonderful. It is also uh, has elements of magical circumstances uh, within a realistic setting. But set more in uh, present day. Yeah. I was also thinking of Circe by Madeline Miller for, again, the elements of magic and um, fantasy. A woman on an island. (laughs) Yeah, women on an island (laughs) tied with the um, the modern themes uh, and that we discussed as far as how do women push back in their within their cultural context. Mm, That is a good one. So closing out, we'd love to hear what are things that you're currently obsessed with, Rebecca? What what are things bringing you joy? Books, TV, movies, food, your dog, <laughs> anything <laughs> My dog like always. to, uh, to My shout dog always. out. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm I'm in the process of moving from, uh, so I gave, I gave up my job last year, I sold my house, I am now waiting to, so I'm moving a long way south. And I've bought a house that is in a, a little town, a little witchy town called Lewis. And mm. when I say witchy, it really is quite a witchy town. And uh, my new house needs massive renovation. I have to wait for two months before I move in. So I am currently obsessed with the names of paint colours. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I have ordered a lot of paint charts and my son is an art dealer and has a beautiful eye. He really, he and I share the same, a very similar taste. So when I showed him this, my sitting room, he said, oh, you're going to need a rainy pink for that. Hmm. And I thought, oh, what's a rainy pink? That's fantastic. It's like pink with a touch of blue, maybe? Anyway, so we've been sending each other colours backwards and forwards to try and get close to this rainy pink. But yes, there is a paint company called Farrow and Ball, and they have the most extraordinary names for colours, like Elephant's Breath. Wow. I love, isn't that just great? Elephant's Ah. Breath. (laughs) I think think I'm remembering it right. And it reminds me, so when, when I wrote my first book, it was about Darwin, and it was about Darwin on the Beagle, or at least part of the book was about Darwin on the Beagle. And he was a young man collecting specimens, and he was having to describe them. And he had to use a colour chart that all naturalists used. And they those colours had the most extraordinary names. So they would, you know, they were also like Farrow and Ball. So a particular white might be eyeball white. Hmm. Eyeball yeah. white. So what's 
eyeball white. And there would be like 10 different whites and they would all have these body parts attached to them. Yeah, so colour charts. That's that's a particular joy of mine right now. I love that. Yeah. All right. How about you, V? So I recently read This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Julie and I have literally rearranged our schedules to, to record an episode on this book next week because we just texted each other a lot of all caps <laughs> messages as we were reading. This is how you lose the time war. It yeah. is a delight. It is a novel that Julia was recommended a while back. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that sounds fascinating. I'll add it to my reading list. And I stayed up till three in the morning finishing it. It was just a thrill the whole way yeah. around. I literally finished, I finished it yesterday. And I am still reeling from that story. It was so good. Yeah. Oh my God. Talk about an obsession. I, I spend at least 20 minutes every day since I finished reading the book just thinking about the ending. <laughs> so I also, um, unfortunately, came down with COVID. I finally caught the plague um, about a month ago. And my coping mechanism was watching all of Only Murders in the Building. The The podcast jokes and asides through the whole two seasons is delightful Mm -hmm. and um yes yeah yeah I would um I would agree with both of those and I would also add an album I've been listening to on repeat has this week has been Marchita by Silvana Estrada just the most unique voice and just incredibly musically talented so thank you so so much Rega for joining us. This was so fun and enlightening and I'm walking away with so many thoughts. So how can listeners follow your work? Where can they find your book? Uh, uh, all good bookstores, I guess. I mean, it's hard to say, but yeah, yeah. it's um, it's hard for me to say mm. where they can find it in America, but I imagine most independent bookstores. I have a website. So there's quite a lot on my website about how I wrote the book and the research behind it, and the brooch, and the dark soil, and where the title came from. So if people do read the book and want to read more, then they can go to my website. And I'm on Twitter, uh, Rebecca Stott 64 is, I think, my handle. That's, that's where they can... And yeah, Dark Earth should be easy to find. It's been out in the States since July, in hardback, and in audiobooks as well. So thank you all listeners uh, for joining us. Julie and I will be back with our full length episode in two weeks time where we'll be talking about this is how you lose the time war Yeah, because we cannot wait to get that episode into your ears. Yeah. So thank you so much again, Rebecca, for joining us. And uh, we can't wait to, to read what else you write. Yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Such an interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Book Club with Julie and Victoria. We would love to hear your thoughts on this book or the topic we discuss. So you can share your review and recommendations with us on Instagram at bookclubwithjv, on our website, bookclubwithjv.com, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website for show notes with links to all of the recommendations and the things bringing us joy. If you don't already, go ahead and follow us on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so that you can be notified when our next episode is released. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Brewer, along with Julia Clausen. Rebecca Gasby provides us with project management support, our music is composed by Greg Burek, and our logo was designed by Gabby Fablin. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>